Okay. Well, hey there. Hello. I realized the last episode I didn't say who you were, so people who were listening didn't know that this beautiful voice they were listening to was that of my husband, Craig Johnson. Mm. I'm Adam Roberts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I am so excited because our, our guest today is um, Nick Sharma, who is an incredible cookbook author. He's the author of Season, um, which is a beautiful Indian cookbook. And he's also a food blogger who um, has a blog. Look what Winston's doing to your proboscis monkey oh, called A Brown Table. And he has a column in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, also called a brown table, so he's a great guest. But before we start, you know, I wanted to tell Craig. Uh, Craig and I are both watching right now. People are going to be discussing that line. Look what Winston's doing to your proboscis monkey. Is that what I just said? <laughs> yes. And then you didn't explain what that meant. Oh, he's going to eat the the thing. Explain what's happening. Yeah, Winston has taken. Uh, Craig has a stuffed proboscis monkey. That sits on the couch in the room where we record. They were wrap gifts from a movie I made called Alex Strangelove, which features um, proboscis monkeys. He's obsessed. Available Look, on he, Netflix. I'm, 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 I'm promoting my I know. Movie. You're plugging yourself. Plugging. Look at him. He's really like into like grabbing your proboscis monkeys. Well, anyway, so today's um, podcast features Nick's lunch. And part of what I wanted to talk to you about um, in this introduction was what he had for lunch. And, and I was struggling with that because I, was like, I didn't want to spoil it. But then I realized that the title of the episode contains what he had for lunch. And when I say the word of what he had for lunch, you're immediately going to light up because it's something that's come up a bunch in our relationship. Oh, boy. Do you know, do you know what Nick no had idea. for lunch? No. Donuts. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. You want to un- start unpacking this? Well, Craig seems to think that there's one trigger word in our relationship. There's multiple trigger words, but but one of them is definitely donuts. And do you want to tell the story of donuts? I, I No, I don't want to go in into it other than, other than on two separate occasions, maybe even more, when I, we've gone to get donuts or I have come home with a donut or, God forbid, I've purchased more than one donut at once. That's your real trigger thing. For some reason... You can't handle it, and you freak out because I I, I would deign to get to I, I maybe have donuts once every I don't a year at the most, and and probably about three out of the four times I've gotten donuts in our relationship, you have flipped out and had a fit, and we've gotten to a huge fight. This what is me, that all about? Well, this makes me think that like relationships really are like Rashomon, which is that Kurosawa movie where it's the same event, but different people tell different perspectives. Because if I were to tell the donut story of our relationship, I would start by saying that a couple of years ago, we were going to Palm Springs for the weekend, and we stopped at a, um, a donut place called California Donuts, which was near the highway. And I think I was trying to be good. I think I was just starting like to be healthy and... I um, had just started working out and maybe I was seeing a trainer. I don't know. I was like on a health kick, but we went to California Donuts and I got one donut and that was going to be my thing. And you got two donuts. And I remember we were in the car and I ate my donut and you ate yours. And then you started eating the second one and you were just like gobbling it up. And there was just enjoying it. We were on vacation, (laughs) living my life, living my truth. And also... Uh, uh, being a grown adult, making my own decisions that had nothing to do with you. Well, look, I'll be the first to admit that when you gorge on donuts, it's probably like me working out my own issues about wishing I could. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, it is. 
But this also reminds me of our conversation last week about cholesterol and cheese and you getting mad at me for yelling at you for eating cheese and crackers. Because I guess for me, what the whole donut fight is about is that thinking of a donut as the most unhealthy thing a person can eat. It's deep fried. It's covered in sugar. It's dough. It's enriched with like eggs and, and yes, fat and Yes, people should butter. not eat donuts every day. Donuts once or twice a year is just fine, even if you eat two in one sitting. Wow, already, you know, the ugly. But then when we went to Japan and we got into another donut fight because what happened I there? Mean, I, would, I would say, I wouldn't say we got into a fight. I'd say I bought donuts and you freaked out. <laughs> well, I guess in my own psychology, it has to do with like wanting to eat as many donuts as I could, but having to stop myself. Yes. Keyword, your psychology. I know, but it's your psychology too. Well, there's a very simple uh, solution to all of this, which is when I buy two donuts, mind your own business. Well, not to quote um, Freud, uh-huh. but when I took a psychology class in, I think it was in law school, I learned about the ego, the id, and the superego. Oh, please tell me more. The ego is driving the car. And the id is the devil on your shoulder saying, you know, hey, take your seatbelt off and blast your music as loud as you can. And your super ego is like wagging its finger and saying, um, you know, be careful, put your seatbelt back on. It's sort of like the school marm. Wow, Winston's really into He this loves eating monkey. that proboscis monkey. Um, and what I was going to say is like, it almost feels like in our relationship, we operate like, the human brain in that you are the id you want to just be able to eat and do whatever you want and i'm the super ego where i'm wagging my finger and like you shouldn't do that it's going to give you high cholesterol and somewhere in the middle is a balance and that's why we work well as a couple but the but the perspective that's lost here is 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 i would be an id if i indulge in if i indulge in every impulse i had I'm sure I'd be eating cheese and donuts every day of my life, well, which, I do, also, which I don't do. But if I was a, so so a real a perspective, but if I was a finger wagger constantly, I wouldn't have even eaten the first donut. Who said you weren't a finger wagging a finger wagger constantly? You you are a little bit. No, I'm saying, but I'm defending myself the same way you're defending yourself as not constantly being an id. But you are constantly a finger wagger. No, I'm not. Wait. I said I'm not constantly a finger wagger. Yeah, I no, think, I know you did. I, I maybe take issue with that. And I take Ca- issue with that you're not constantly oh, an God. id. Okay, this is this is pointless. No, because you. It, it's about the this mechanisms of this, self. This self. No, there's no escape from this for your poor listeners at this point. I think they're they're eating it up with a spoon. No, they have turned it off. You already. think so? Yes. They can't. They, this is too much for them. They have their own issues in their own lives. They probably have their own marital discord they don't need to deal with ours. but don't you think on a podcast that's about how lunch is a metaphor for our lives that it's interesting how donuts bring up all these relationship issues for us they don't bring up anything for me i'm just having two but stupid you're part donuts. of this relationship you're dating somebody or you're married to somebody who gets upset about donuts and you get upset and there's a fight about it and we have a whole flip out fight and then we're just storming off and doors are slamming so it does trigger a fight if you didn't think if you didn't care what i thought about donuts you would just let it roll right off you and you wouldn't think twice about it all I can say is donuts clearly trigger something within you that I don't think you have fully worked through. What do you think it is? I, 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 I don't know. To me, it's about indulgence. It's about managing indulgence. I actually think this comes up for us a lot in life 
I don't think it's just about donuts. I think it's about like going out and staying out. It's like going to a party and me feeling like I, you know, it's like, I, I, I guess I tend to more go to more extremes than you. So if I like want to go out and I like drink or something and I get drunk, like I'll really get drunk, but I, or I will, I'll go, I'll go home early, but it's, it's like hard for me to find the middle. So with like, like a box of donuts, like when you bought, I think you came out in the store in Tokyo with a box of donuts, you'd bought like a whole box or you bought like four or five donuts four or five donuts so for me i think the the trigger is like oh my god how am i going to stop myself I, I could eat all of those in a second so i think for you maybe you're able to manage your indulgences better but to me but but i think watching you eat two donuts sort of stirs up the thing in me where it's like i don't have that mechanism to stop okay i guess i have I to buy that assessment i guess i have to be stricter with myself because i'm scared of my capacity to kind of go overboard okay all right but I think we, I think your response to this whole conversation is indicative of the, of the idea that, and I guess it's fair to say that you're allowed to eat as many donuts as you want and I shouldn't get upset about it. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Well, there you go. Because I'm a grown, full-grown man. It's not about you being a full-grown man, though. It's about why, it's about having empathy for your partner and why they're stirred up by whatever you're doing. Oh, it's very hard to have empathy for you in those moments. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, you guys really are getting an earful. Nothing. (laughs) That's true. Um, Well, this week's episode, as I mentioned, uh, features Nick Sharma. Do you feel? Wait, hold on, hold on. Do you feel like you can go to extremes? I don't. You. I I feel like you painted yourself as like a party animal who like can't stop with the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, I think I I think it's something you you like. I don't think it's something you you understand about. You don't like going out and staying out late because if I do, then I'd want to go to the extreme of it. Like I don't like if we go out to like a bar or something. There's dancing. You see me get drunk and you see me dancing on the dance floor. I mean, you're a lightweight. I am a lightweight, but like I can go to those extremes. It's like. It's like it's hard for me to just find the middle. And so, you know, even like just before this like current two week period that I'm in, like I just started going to the gym again every day for the past two weeks. And before that, it was like Christmas time and I had the flu and people heard me coughing on the podcast and I was just eating pastries. I was eating all kinds of junk like it was either I go to extremes. Okay. All right. Yeah, no, I'm 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 more in in the middle. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm pretty good at finding a balance and I think I can stop myself. And I think also like sweets aren't your thing. So for you to get donuts is a sort of rare thing because it's it's not like you go get dessert a bunch. Ooh, of- now now we're getting somewhere. Sweets are 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 your thing. Yes. And your indulgence and that's good. It's you know, it's it's not meth. <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> So, um, uh, so I can see how that would be triggering for you. It's true. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to now uh, introduce our guest this week. Um, but before I do, I want to remind you that if you haven't subscribed to this podcast already, um, you can look up Lunch Therapy on Apple Podcasts and click subscribe. And while you're there, if you can leave us a review, I always appreciate a good review. It makes a huge difference. And also, I realize that I don't say this enough, but if you don't know, I'm on Instagram. If you want to see what I cook all the time, I just made salmon tonight. Um, you can go onto my cooking Instagram, which is Amateur Gourmet. And if you want to see what I have for lunch, go to my lunch podcast Instagram, which is at lunch therapy. And actually, if you want to follow Craig, he's at CSJ214. Are you a public account? A public account? Yeah, anybody can follow you. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, here's this week's guest. Here's my session with 
Nick Sharma. And well, Nick, thank you so much for coming all this way. Of course, thanks, Adam. Yeah, I, and I met you. I'm trying to think. Was it like at Christmas time at a party? Yeah, at a friend's place for. Yeah. Um, what was it? It was a little before Christmas, but it was a Christmas themed uh, dinner. Yeah. Well, I think Christmas parties like are prime. You have to kind of claim your date early because people, you mm-hmm, know, they. Mm-hmm. Wait, so I have so many things to ask you. First of all, okay. I have to say I'm a fan of yours. I've had Thank your you. cookbook since it's come out. Thank you. And it's gorgeous. It's called Season. Uh-huh. And how? when, when did that come out? Uh, it came out about two years ago, almost two years ago. Well, a little under two years. October 2nd, mm-hmm. 2018. I have that in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is your first cookbook, right? Right. That's probably why I remember all the nitty gritty details. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. I mean, you know, I don't, I, I'm a lunch therapist, so I'm not supposed okay. to praise my guests, but I have to say that I was just looking through it before you came here again. Uh-huh. And it's just so, it's a gorgeous book. Thank it's you. actually very unique looking, like the design of it and the style of it doesn't remind me of any other book I've ever seen. I was very fortunate that I had a say from design to paper uh-huh. and everything with my publisher okay um they really paid attention they really they, they sat down with me they asked me about the book what designs i like what colors i like mm-hmm. um and they went with that which was really nice and the photography you did the photography i did too. the photography too but how when you're holding like when, when your hands are in the picture is did you set up like a tripod like how do you take those yeah i use it it's I was going to say magic, but I'm going to go with the tripod, <laughs> okay. which is more believable. Yeah. But yeah, I use a tripod when I shoot because um, I'm trying to capture myself in the act as it's happening. Uh-huh. And the tripod makes it really easy. Well, it's so funny because I, I mean, much like you, because you also are a food blogger. Right. I used to be a food blogger. Right. And my early posts, I mean... My photography, I used to like literally have the cheapest, crappiest camera and take a flash picture of all the food. Uh-huh. And eventually people were like, you know, you'd have a lot more success if you got a nicer camera. So right. over the years, I learned little tricks. Like natural light was a big one to, uh-huh. you know, try to shoot next to the window, made it easier. Sure. But yours, like, I mean, this, yours are almost, um, I think, like steps beyond the typical. Took, I mean, if you go back and you look at what I've done, it's yeah. pre- it's pretty crappy. I've got stuff where um, I used to use an old one, one of those old point and shoot cameras, uh-huh. um, and then finally graduated from that to improve, like you said. And I got, I still didn't go because it's so expensive, so I didn't go all out. And I wasn't making any money off the blog, so there was no point in really investing in it. I and we should sh- say the name of your blog is a. It's a brown table. a brown table, yeah. right, right. right. Um, and so I started out just photographing for the heck of it because a blog just needed some visual component to it otherwise it's just a bunch of words that i wouldn't probably read but i shouldn't say that i'm curious like of all the elements of things that you do because you create recipes you cook you um write and you take pictures i mean if you had to rank those in terms of which one do you enjoy the most to the one that you enjoy the least what would you say cooking Cooking is the most? Cooking is definitely, because that's what gets me into all of these things. Yes. If I didn't like to cook, I probably would never want to write about food. Uh-huh. And then I also wouldn't photograph, or at least be driven to really photograph food. Um, so I think that's probably like the starting point. And then obviously, like the visual aspect of it, I'm really attracted to that. Right. Um, and so I enjoy that. 
Well, Nikki, I feel like you're going to be such a great guest today because you have, I mean, I've read a bunch about you. I mean, you have such an interesting story. So we'll probably get into all the okay. details. Um, but I do want to ask you, you just moved to L.A. I did, yeah. So how's that going for you so far? It's fun. It's warm. I can wear shorts in <laughs> winter, which is really nice. What are you talking about? It's freezing outside. No, it's not. What is it really? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I, I, I just say that now because I came from New York and then uh, I got here and I was like, wow, it's so warm. And then like five or six years in, I was like, ooh, it's 50 degrees and yeah. so cold. <laughs> I'm, I'm not there yet, but uh, coming from Oakland where it's a little warmer, it's much warm, much more warmer than San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But I like going to, when I worked in San Francisco, I never wore shorts in okay. all the years that I lived out there in the winter. During the year. Even oh, even in the summer? Because San Francisco can get cold in summer. Oh, okay. Because um, it has its microclimate. And then Oakland sometimes gets a bit of that, the brunt of that, mm-hmm. and it can be cold. But for the most part, I feel Oakland, yeah, I could wear shorts. But here, it's winter now. And wear shorts. You can, and and for those who can't see, he's wearing short shorts with holes all over them and rhinestones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. No, no. Uh, well, that's a nice. But so, what brought you to LA? So, uh, what brought me to LA? Change. <laughs> Change. Yeah. Uh, for one, but mostly because my husband got a job out here, okay. and then that was kind of the push for the move. Now, LA's food scene right now is sort of hot. I mean, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> word, but it feels like journalists from around the country are writing about restaurants in right. LA in particular. Mm-hmm. And did, did, was that part of the draw for you, or, or has that been part of the experience for you of coming here? Of- I would say it definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not want to leave California when he was when my husband was deciding where we should move next because he likes change. Yes, um, I'm more of a person that wants to find a place that's comfortable and I don't move away. Sure. Uh, so, Mike, I've told him we're not moving after this because at this point I just don't see why we should move because yeah. the food scene is so vibrant here. You, what I really enjoy about this city is that it is so big. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot more stuff going on. You can get really good, fun, innovative food at different price points mm-hmm. um, and enjoy it, right? And I think that's so important that you should be able to eat delicious food and tasty food uh, that's fun, inventive, in budget. And if you want to go above, sure. Yeah, but yeah. that option should be available to everyone. Right? And LA is unique in that it has these areas where you can get, you know, it's like Beverly Hills, you spend like $1,000 on dinner. Right. But then you can go to downtown LA and like have incredible tacos right. or, you know, it's just, it's, yeah, it's a huge range. Yeah, I, I, that's something that I'm really enjoying right now. Uh huh. Yeah. So how about San Francisco? Were you a huge fan of the food scene there? <laughs> uh, He's making funny faces. <laughs> <laughs> It's different, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example. I've having not grown up in this country, I will say that living in California, it's been a real treat to just see how Mexican food just changes so much. Mm-hmm. From you could come from Northern, so I came from DC to California. So from DC to California, it's a big jump, right? Mm-hmm. And then within California, now it's a big jump for me coming to Southern California and then seeing that uh, I was at a restaurant the other day with a friend, um, and they had Mexican food. Mm-hmm. But it was influenced by Indian food. And then there was another restaurant we went to that was influenced by Burmese food. Really? And I want to go to those places. We should go. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. Uh, but I, I feel like that's something that's so different. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that really helps um, chefs and cooks out here is 
um, rent, mm-hmm. right? I feel like in San Francisco, a lot of chefs are moving away because the price, the cost of innovation is shifted. And I've read that some of the servers in restaurants can't afford to live in San Francisco yeah, anymore. And they have to bus in to, you know. I mean, I worked with people. So I was working as a food photographer, a startup, and I worked with staff, cooking staff mm-hmm. um, that were coming in all the way from Napa to the city or even Sonoma because wow. they couldn't afford to live in the city, which... It's crazy. That is a crazy. lot of them were, you know, had families, little kids, little babies. It's it's just not a feasible lifestyle. So this this sounds like a welcome move for you to LA. Right? I don't have kids, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying in terms of the way the culture the way you described what you liked about LA, that feels like it flies in the face of what you didn't like about San Francisco in terms of the you know, the ability for people to afford to open restaurants here and, you know, economic. Right. I mean, it's just so different. And I understand that part of it is the, um, the geography plays a huge role and then politics and all those other factors Mm -hmm. play a big role. Um, so it's, I mean, yes, in that sense, yes. I will say, though, I am glad to have had that experience living in San, in Oakland. I've never really lived in San Francisco, but it brought a lot of the biggest changes in my life. It's mm-hmm. I feel it's the city that gave me my first professional start into food. Mm-hmm. Um, and s- that's where I got the job to write the column for the San Francisco Chronicle. Right. Uh, so all these, I feel like, so I'm very grateful for that. I yeah. can't deny that. Uh, but I also have to grow. And I feel that the experiences that I'm having right now, it's exciting. I might be in my honeymoon phase. Oh, uh, of course. I went through that. When I first moved to LA from New York, which was in 2011, I think, um, I, I had what was sort of like a cognitive dissonance where I didn't allow myself to, to register any of the things I didn't like. Right. So I was like, this is amazing. Oh my God, these <laughs> farmer's markets are amazing. I can drive to the grocery store. I can drive to the gym. Right. And then I hit this wall about a couple months in. I was like, why am I here? But it was a little, <laughs> it was a little different though. Cause I, we, I didn't have as much of a reason to come except for Craig. Sure. So I, I just had this identity crisis where I was, cause in New York I had been working for the food network and I'd been doing all these food things. And I was like, why? And, and so I kind of had to come back up from that i had that when i moved to california the first time yeah i we had to again move for my husband's job he wanted a career change and so we moved out there we had that I was, in common yeah, yeah both of us yeah and i was still in um working as a molecular biologist at the time oh my god there's so much to ask you about okay? and so i went to a lab and i was working in a lab and i was feeling so unsatisfied and then i felt like God, this is so miserable. Yeah. But why did I move here? I'm all, I was also living in the suburbs at that point. Okay. And I have never really lived in a suburb until that point. Uh, so I didn't know what people did. Mm-hmm. I had no friends. I'd given up everything. I said, this is just rough. I want to move back to yeah. D.C. I think everyone goes through that when they move to a new place. But you... this has been nice. Yeah. I feel now having lived in California, knowing kind of what you expect, uh-huh. and then also having a base, a bigger base of friends now that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel for the most part, everybody has been really warm and friendly. Except like, for me. Yeah, you never invited <laughs> me over on <laughs> You're here right now. And this podcast is here. I mean, well, Nick, the time has come. Uh-huh. Our moment has arrived. Okay. For me to ask you, what did you have for lunch today? So I'm probably going to be a, a bad person to ask this, but... There's no right or wrong. There's no judgment here. I went with sweet. Sweet, okay. okay. The reason was I had some work to do in the morning. Then I had to run to the farmer's market to get oranges because I have I had this goal of making bitter orange marmalade and I needed Seville oranges. Wow. I had to do that. So woke up early, had my breakfast, and then went to the farmer's market. What was for breakfast? 
eggs, just eggs and toast. Okay. And, and the farmer's market, you're talking about the San Francisco, the Santa Monica, Santa Monica yeah. which is incredible. Yeah. And I had like a couple of friends. Um, I've been bugging them to find out where I can find Seville oranges. And then they gave me the name of the farmer. Uh-huh. Went out there, got the oranges. By the time I was walking back, I said, shoot, I'm going to pass by Sidecar Donuts. Okay. Sidecar and they're Donuts. they're so good. I've never had it. Oh, I should get you some next time. Yeah. 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 So what kind of donuts did you so get? So I really like the chocolate donut. And then, so I got one of those. And then... I got the Maya lemon, Ooh. which is good. It's still, I like a bit more tartness. Uh-huh. Um, and then I got a second chocolate donut and <laughs> wait, wait, wait. And then <laughs> the, uh, I got a passion fruit pavlova donut. And out of those, the chocolate and the pavlova one, the passion fruit pavlova are my favorite. The other two I'm going to give to my husband. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, so you ate a chocolate donut and a passion fruit pavlova donut. Yeah. Can you describe the passion fruit pavlova donut? It's... So I, what I really like about their donuts in general is the soft texture, mm-hmm. but the Pavlova donut has, it wasn't as crunchy as I expected a Pavlova to be. It mm-hmm. was much more soft. It felt very creamy on top. Everything's put on top. Oh, so it's like a regular donut and then the Pavlova on top. And then it's kind of like loaded on top. I see. Okay. Um, and um, you've got this passion fruit pulp on top mm-hmm. and there's a bit of cream in it. And then when you cut through, everything just falls apart. So it feels really nice. Well, what I'm, what, what I'm immediately interested in is the passion fruit part of it, because I've seen on your Instagram that you cook with passion fruit. I love passion fruit. And in your cookbook, you have recipes with passion fruit. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about passion fruit and, and yeah, yeah, when yeah. you first tasted it? And So passion fruit was one of the things I ate in Hawaii on a, on a trip. And um, this is the most unusual, weirdest tropical tasting fruit. Yes, I love it too. Right? Yeah. And I went to India. I'm from India originally. And when I went to India, they now grow it there, which wasn't a thing before, but it's come there. Um, and they had another version of it, which um, I'm going to get the name wrong and I can't remember probably, but it starts with G. Okay. Granadillos. Maybe. I don't know. Um but that's a different kind of passion fruit where the color is white, but it's extremely sweet. And when I lived in Oakland, I would walk by people's houses when I had my dog walk by. And I would see all these passion fruits hanging from their vines. Mm-hmm. That was fair game because it was on the sidewalk. Um, <laughs> I'm so nervous right? to do that in my neighborhood. We have orange trees all over and I don't want to take from anybody. Oh, yeah. I- I wasn't scared. We have a Meyer lemon tree on this uh, property. You're welcome to some Meyer lemons. Okay. Yeah. So I used to take them. And then finally, my husband said, you need to stop doing that <laughs> because he says you might get into trouble. Okay. Um, and I said, you know what? We have a backyard. I'm going to grow my own. So I went, found a nursery that had one that was already fruiting, mm-hmm. planted that. That took over the whole wall. Okay. And I had a lot of passion fruit. Um. When we were moving from Oakland to San Francisco, this is the first. So I planted it last year, produced a lot of fruit this year. Plucked it all out because really? I wasn't leaving any back. And I drove down with them. Wait, well, you drove down with the tree? No, with the passion fruit. Oh, just the passion fruit. So okay. we had... Oh, I see. You, you plucked it before the new person. Yeah. And Got so it. I came with like boxes of passion fruit mm-hmm. and then waited for all of that to ripen. It ripens off the vine. So it's great. And then I've been, I froze all the pulp and I've been using it when I need to. Oh my gosh. Well, there was something you said in there that I think everyone's going to be very interested in, which is that you say you grew up in India. I did, yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up on the West Coast in Bombay. Okay. in, In the heart of the city. And did you grow up in a family where there was lots of cooking and food and meals? Uh, not really. I probably dispel a lot of preconceived notions when I say this, that my mother actually hates to cook. Oh, very interesting. My mother hates to cook, too. So I think that's very common. Which is why I think maybe we overcompensate for cooking. Uh, Yeah. And whenever she did, it was was always the same thing. What was it? 
Um, I don't even remember. It was so inconsequential. And I'm, <laughs> you don't she, remember if it was the same it, thing. There, I mean, I feel like we had some standard things that she cooked and then my mother worked. So she also, she was always more interested in working okay. rather than cooking. What did she do? Um, she worked in the hotel business. Okay. Uh, so similar kind of. I feel like the apple didn't fall that far away from the tree. Oh, in terms of hospitality? Yeah. So she worked right in hotels. And then, um, so she didn't cook a lot. I kind of was so bored of her food. So I started looking through her cookbooks and all those like newspaper articles she was cutting out and then ended up cooking from learning how to cook from those. Really? Yeah. And how old were you when you started cooking? Um, I think they started leaving me alone at home when I was about 11 or 12. Oh, and that's when you started? Yeah. And were they supportive of your parents? Of you yeah, cooking? I mean, as long as I didn't set anything on fire, they uh-huh. were fine. Um, Do you remember the first thing that you made? I think the first thing that I made, when I learned to use the stove, it was a fried egg. Okay. Um, that was something that they wanted to make sure I didn't set the house on fire, so <laughs> fried eggs. And then after that, I learned how to make rice. And, and was it a specific method that you learned? or? Um, I mean, the, I, at that time, I didn't think the method was anything special. Uh-huh. It was pretty much you soak rice and then you boil it with like an inch above the height with water. It's basmati rice? Yeah. Okay. And then um, you cook it till the water evaporates and the rice is uh, long. Right, right. Yeah. And is that still how you cook it today? I still do. I, and now I know the more technical term is absorption. Uh-huh. So I we, cook by oh, yeah. absorption. <laughs> so you're a scientist too. We have to get to that. There's yeah. so many questions to ask you. So, okay, so you grew up in Bombay, yeah. and then what brought you to the United States? So, I came for grad school. Okay, so um, you went to college in, in India? I did. So, okay. I went through, um, let's see, what did I do? So, I got my I got my bachelor's in microbiology and biochemistry, and then got another master's in biochemistry, just for that equivalent in terms of uh, mm-hmm. years of schooling. And then I came to the College of Medicine at Cincinnati, where I studied molecular genetics. Wow. Um, so when you were doing all this, were you still cooking a bunch? I had to because I was living alone. Okay. Um, and so I learned how to cook. Um, and then even like the roommates that I had for a couple of months really didn't cook. So I had to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and, what, what, and were you making the kind of meals that we see in, on your blog and in your cookbook? Like, were, were you starting to become more Initially, I, I started off with knowing what I kind of kind of new a little bit, mm-hmm. but also coming from another country, you really don't want to eat everything you eat all your life. Yes. So I started like going to the store and I would get pasta sauce because we didn't get, at the time we didn't get pasta sauce and pasta in India. So it was something new. You do now yeah, yeah. Uh, with globalization and everything. <laughs> uh, but so there were all these like little, little things that I said, oh, this is really interesting. Let mm-hmm. me try it out. So I think that helped. And I, what also helped was I, um, I know there's a lot, like, there are a lot of preconceived notions that everyone from India is vegetarian, which is actually not true. Right. right. Um, like, my mom's Catholic, my dad's Hindu, so I come from two different backgrounds anyway, and so we ate everything. The only thing I tell people when they ask me whether I, you know, what you don't eat, because they freak out when I come over. Yes. And uh, I say the only thing I don't eat are turnips. I do not like the smell of turnips. <laughs> turnips? Yeah. That's very specific. I think it's the most disgusting smell. What about rutabagas? Nope. Oh, what about cabbage? I love cabbage. Okay. Yeah. So just turnips. Turnips. The smell is just so gross. <laughs> and I refuse to cook it at home. I love turnips. Oh. When you roast a chicken, you put turnips and carrots no. and everything. No? no. I, I'll put the carrots in the turnips. I'm going to make you a turnip tasting menu. You're going to come over and you're going to love come it. Over. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. There's lots of different places, but I think maybe we should circle back to your donuts just for a second. Because okay. The idea, the premise of this podcast. I mean, you are a man of science, and this is very scientific. But I try to use the the lunch as a metaphor. Okay. And what I thought was interesting was that you said you said that um, you decided to go for sweet today. Uh huh. So are, do you tend to be either or? or? Is it sort of like a sweet day or a savory day? Oh, okay. Um, in general, I have a sweet tooth. I'm not a big fan of bitter. Mm-hmm. I strug- I still struggle with a lot of bitter tastes. Like what? Um, like bitter melon. That's oh. some, some, I don't hate it. Yes. Uh, but it's something that my... It's cooked a lot in India. And uh, my parents always said, oh, it's good for you, yes. blah, blah, blah. And then they have to fry and season it so much that yeah. the, I feel like the point is kind of lost. By the way, the, I, I told you over text message, these, the listeners don't know this, but I live near an Indian supermarket. Right. And they have bitter melon there and they served it and they have a, like a restaurant in the front. And I've never had it before. And it was so bitter. I it mean, is so bitter. I've never had anything like, like it. I feel like if you have to go to that point of bitterness yeah. and you have to fry and season it so much like my parents do, what's yes. the point? <laughs> like, what, what, like, what are you doing, right? That's like durian. Like, it smells so disgusting. But I've actually never s- come into contact. Oh, I'm, like, I'm curious. I would... It smells like gasoline, but okay. then, but it tastes okay. Okay, but it's sort of similar idea though. It's like, like why would you want to go? Overripe bananas are another thing that oh. it's sweet. I like it. Yes, uh, but I feel like throwing up. Oh, when it's like if you ha- if I have to make a banana pound cake with overripe bananas, yeah. even thinking about it right now is making my really. Yeah. So you're very sensitive to, to some like smells. I, I even that like thinking about the texture of a mashed pureed banana. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what about it is so gross? I don't know. I I think it's just that the intensity of the aromatic chemicals is so strong uh, for me. Yes, I can't handle it. Um, so okay when you said aromatic chemicals I feel like I got to see the side of you that thinks like a scientist so do you approach food and cooking scientifically most of the time I do okay Uh, and I don't think it's a conscious choice it's just because that's the way I was trained to think Mm -hmm. Um, even every um, my husband says this to me too even relationships he says sometimes he gets annoyed because I'm way too long I have to think logically about everything (laughs) okay okay but I think that's just mentally, it's been ingrained. I've been brainwashed into thinking that way. Mm-hmm. So everything has to be approached from um, like the science angle. But isn't there, for me, it's so interesting because everyone always praises um, Harold McGee's cookbook, The Science of Cooking. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Uh, food, uh, food and Lore of... Something. He's like a famous food yeah, yeah, scientist. Yeah. And I, that book to me, I may as well be reading like a, a different language. It's so, I don't get it. I don't understand how it helps me. And like, my like role models as a cook are all like Italian grandmothers or just like witches like standing around a pot right. like, throwing a pinch of this, a dash of this. Like that's like I don't know why I said witches, but I just have this image of <laughs> you know, just like people like standing stirring at, a pot. Yeah, stirring yeah. Like, a cauldron and like, yeah, I'm gonna throw in like this. And, that, and that's how I cook. Like I'll I'll make sure. like, a sauce, like I'll make like a tomato sauce with anchovies and garlic and right. then like taste it and throw in some shit. But it feels like when you're scientific, it's almost like you're like, well, the umami flavor of the you anchovies. Find it too clinical? Well, no, I'm just curious, okay. like how, like where does the art enter the science? Like where does the artistry? Well, okay, enter? so this is what I, the way I look at it. I feel like um, I love the emotional aspect of food. I can't deny that. Yes. Uh, but I also appreciate the fact that a lot of the people that have been cooking before us, generations and generations, right, centuries, these people have been cooking and actually performing science experiments in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
And now we have the tools to kind of analyze and understand why. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. I've been reading a paper um, on a science paper that came out a couple of years ago on heating chilies in oil and what it does. And okay. I f- so this is, I feel, where I really enjoy Harold McGee. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two versions of his book. The first one that came out and then someone gifted the second one to me and... I love it because to me, it reads like my college textbooks, right. which is fun yeah, for yeah. me, right? Because you're I always interested. Facts, right. Yeah. And so for me, that part is easy. Um, but for example, like in India, we do this thing where we heat oil and we season it with chilies. Chilies were introduced much later by the Portuguese to India. So it's not something that it's much more of a recent addition. Mm-hmm. But I still find it fascinating that even a couple of hundred years ago, chilies were added to oil. And that changes the character of the oil, right? Mm-hmm. Because chilies contain capsaicin. Capsaicin is an antioxidant. It looks for oxygen and protects things. Okay. Right. And so when in oil, we talk about smoke points. Right. Right. And so the longer you heat an oil, depending on the type it is, and it reaches a certain temperature, it starts to break down at its smoke point, which Uh is bad. Now you cook chilies in the oil. Capsaicin breaks down into certain molecules and these molecules then affect the smoke point and actually protect the oil from breaking down. Really? So then when you tie this science information that we have now with stuff that people have been doing for so long, mm-hmm. it's, I find that fascinating that they didn't have all these tools, mm-hmm. but they did this and... It was a. It has a positive outcome. That's it. That's an interesting. I mean, for me, because I I went to grad school for playwriting and dramatic writing, and it reminds me of like there are certain rules. You know, like Aristotle wrote the Poetics, which is like how to tell a story, and you can memorize those rules. Right. And I think what happens is eventually they kind of enter the back of your mind, and then when you sit down to write something. It's there, but you don't have to be thinking about it all the time. Right. And I imagine for you, science kind of operates in the same way when you cook. It's not right. like you're cracking open a, tex- a textbook every time you turn right. on the stove, but you're, it's just informing how you're doing things. Right. I really, like, I do enjoy books, and I feel like some of the books that I remember the most are always the ones that teach me something new, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, as a person who's writing recipes, developing them, writing cookbooks, uh, it's important for me not to just like follow things. Yes. But I want to question the system as to why are we doing what we're doing? Why is someone doing it a different way? The same thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I, so I need to understand what gives me the best outcome. Is there anything though that defies scientific logic for you that like like a flavor combination or a technique that you haven't been able to figure out scientifically or has, does everything sort of fall into those categories? I think whether we like it or not, even our emotions yes. fall for me yes. when I think about it. Um our attachment to like flavor, texture, taste, food memories, right? Yes. For me, that's all science. Well, I mean, we have two great examples right now. Your aversion to turnips and mashed, right. mashed bananas. No, in, right? all seri- in all seriousness, I guarantee, I believe that it's not just science. I think it's psychological. Yeah. And so my brain is filing these things Maybe that away. is science though when I say it's psychological. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I feel like the brain, I mean, brain. the brain is, the, is one of the major drivers be- behind the whole experience of eating, right? Mm-hmm. And so you like, you don't like something, your brain's going to file it away. Yeah. Um, often it's just aroma because the brain doesn't remember taste. It remembers aroma. Really? Yeah. Aroma can be memorized really well. Uh Taste just does not. Well, it's funny because for me, I once made, you know, Amanda Hesser from Food 52. She has a recipe in her book uh, for an almond cake with almond paste. And I made that and it it became like my favorite cake to make. And I make it all the time for dinner parties. I love it. 
And only like recently did I realize that the same flavor profile was in the cookies my mom would buy me growing up. These like tri-color cookies were like red, yellow, and green with chocolate. And it was also made with almond paste. But I never never realized that the reason I love the almond cake so much is because it reminded me of those cookies. So there's something something to be said for the way the brain works and all this. But I'm curious for you, when you talk about emotions and science and recipes and cooking, I mean... What are the dishes or what are the foods that conjure the most emotion for you? In a positive way, obviously. Either or, hey, this <laughs> is lunch like we, therapy. We, so. we focused on the two negatives already, but mashed bananas, turnips and bananas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those um, are negative. But we haven't, we haven't attached them to a specific memory, though. I, the turnips, is, it's probably easy because it's my parents forcing things down. You know, ah, so your parents kids. made you eat turnips when you were? My parents are very strict. Okay. Yeah. So now that I'm free of their clutches, I do what I want. (laughs) So it was sort of like a clean plate club kind of thing where you had to finish everything on your plate. Yeah. And they would watch, which made it worse. Were you an only child? No, I had a sister. Both of us, I think, went through this thing. I think my sister has some doesn't like some of the same things Mm -hmm. I don't like. And she avoids them, too, as an adult. That's very common for parents to make you eat something that you think you hate. And, yeah. And but, they don't get it now, yeah. like how it's affected us. I bet a lot of people feel that way about Brussels sprouts because their parents made them eat Brussels sprouts and they, and usually they were like boiled and gray yeah. and gross. Um, okay. But what are some of the positive okay, food memories? Okay. Let's see. Uh, positive food memories. I really like the smell of rose water mm-hmm. in desserts just because it's used so much in Indian cooking. Mm-hmm. And so I do like that. Uh, and you'll see that show up on a lot of my sweets too. Um, and then do you have a specific memory attached to rose water? I have a funny one. Yeah. Let's so when it. I first learned to make rice, I remember thinking, so we get this concentrated sweet rose syrup in India. Uh-huh. And for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to make the rice more fragrant and <laughs> pour some in there. And this is, I was going to have the rice with something savory, right? I'll put that in the rice turned pink uh-huh. um, because the syrup has an artificial color that makes everything pink so the rice turned pink and then everything was way too sweet way too gross and be thrown out <laughs> it tastes like perfume i imagine a little bit right? like rose water. very intense yeah. yeah with and the like that taste it just now when you talk about india do you are you still sentimentally attached to india like do you go back and visit is it a place that you love is yeah it... so for the first 12 or 15 years i didn't go back you did not go I back. I did not go okay. back because I was a student and then um, I didn't get a lot of leave in grad school anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of shunned. <laughs> really? And then um, after that, like when I started working, I was going through immigration and everything. So it's always risky. Like, should you go? Should you right? right? Um, and so it was only until I got my green card that I actually went back. I mm-hmm. went once back. I take that back. I went once back in grad school, I think after the first two years. And what did it feel like to be back? The currency changed, so it was very bizarre the first time I went. Okay. And so immediately I felt this is like, I feel like I've come to a different country. Uh-huh. Um, and then coming in Bombay, there's a lot of change that happens constantly. Uh, the markets had changed due to globalization at that time. So there was a lot of um, Western stuff that I didn't get. They were now getting. Now they got it. Right. Was there something that you craved when you got back to India that you wanted to eat that you hadn't been able to I find? wanted a lot of street food. And okay. so I did that. And then... After the 15 years that I went back, that was like the time that I felt, whoa, things have really changed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was interesting. Even the high school that I went to, it's near where my parents live and looked different. It looked smaller. It looked, 
It's just so weird how things change. I think that happens, though. I mean, I think for me, I mean, I wasn't away from my family for that long, but going back to see my high school, it just seems much smaller. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like Bombay is not a populated city. It's one of the most populated cities in the world, but everything still just felt small, Uh um, which was fascinating. I know. I don't think you said that your mom worked in the hotel industry. What did your father do? So my father uh, is retired now, but he worked as a photographer. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So I kind I feel like even though I went into science, I kind of come back into what they were doing. Uh-huh. Oh, both uh, of them. Yeah. yeah. The food and the photography. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what drew you to science and then how you made the left turn into food writing and cookbook authoring? So one of the things early on as a kid, I was fascinated by chemistry and biology mm-hmm. and math. Physics, I hated, and I, I, I struggled with it. But these were Same, the Same, I hated physics. Oh, I hated it. Um, um, and actually, this is kind of relevant, but in my physics class in high school, we had to do something called the egg drop, uh-huh. where you had to like, build like, like a contraption to drop an egg off the top of a, a fire truck ladder. Okay. And uh, somebody told me the secret was to put it in a jar of peanut butter, that the peanut butter would, would protect the egg. Okay. So I dug out like a little thing of, of peanut butter in the... Jiff jar, and I put the egg in, and the guy dropped it from the truck, and the jar exploded all over the sidewalk, <laughs> and I had I had to clean it all up. Anyway, I didn't want to interrupt your that flow. Was, that was funny. Though. Yeah, I feel like it was a good story yeah. to share. Um, but you were saying, so you're interested in science except for physics. Yeah, I'm, I had this, I think I've always had this um, interest in trying things out by myself. And so what I would do, what really sparked it on uh, this interest in science was the fact uh, the colors would change. Mm. I found it really fascinating when you ground plants or something, then you added random shit to it. Yeah. Things would change. Uh-huh. When, you, when you did what to plants? Just like do random things. So uh. one of the things I I remember read, I got a kit for magic tricks mm-hmm. as a kid. And one of the things they said in there was to take turmeric and you cut a lemon with lemon with it and the color won't change. Then you take soap and the color would change and you could do this fake blood kind of thing <laughs> with turmeric yeah and so i thought that was fascinating i uh-huh. couldn't understand why and then when i decided to look it up at the school library it turned out that turmeric was as a pigment it changes color when the ph changes mm-hmm. and that's what so baking soda does it makes it red and so i thought oh that's actually really fascinating so i started getting very curious about these things uh that drew me into it into science because i could see like Things changing, influencing each other. So I found that fascinating. It makes me think a lot about cooking too, about right. the lead up to getting to play with your food a little bit and making the right. color And it change. felt like the same. Th- it feels like a natural thing uh-huh. at the, even at the time, and even now, where I feel like I'm in a lab. I'm testing things. They won't work the first time. They mm-hmm. may not work the second time. But I'm getting closer and closer to what I want to achieve. But it's so fascinating to me. I know that we just talked about this, but like to me, the idea of like if I was making like a lemon cake or something, yeah, like. <laughs> Because taste is subjective, right? Taste is subjective for so, the most part. So then, how do you like scientifically make the best lemon cake? Okay, so one of the things with lemon cake, and I'll tell you from struggles okay. early on, was with lemon cake. The first recipes I encountered always had lemon extract or lemon peel to uh-huh. give the aroma. Right, right. But I, to me, in my mind, a lemon cake should have some kind of acidity in it. Mm-hmm. So when I started to try and introduce lemon juice in it, 
everything would fall flat. Okay. Because the acid would react with the baking soda and neutralize it, and then there was nothing to rise. So even that is good to know, because I've had cakes collapse in the oven. So so lemon juice neutralizes baking soda? Right, because one's acidic, one's alkaline. They come together, they'll produce a salt, and so nothing's going to happen. So what did you do? And so then I had to alter things. I had to increase the amount of baking soda keeping one thing constant and then see if that worked. Then, you know, tweak the next thing and see if that worked. Change your sugar and fat ratios. And so that really kind of made me feel, I'm kind of doing the same thing yeah, that yeah. I was doing in the lab, like tweaking things. Not to get, a, in science, you don't tweak things to get a result. Uh-huh. You, you tweak things to find out whether something is true or not, right? It, you don't really get truth in science. Philosophically, you get right. closer to the truth. What, what were you trying to find out? If what was true with the lemon cake. So with the lemon cake, for me, I just, I, I've never wanted to make anything perfect because yeah. I don't believe in the existence of best or perfect. Right. But I want something that pleases me and satisfies me. So what you were really going for, though, is you wanted to have as much acidity as you could manage while also getting as much rise as you could Right. Manage. I want good texture. I want acidity. Yes. And then later when I wanted aroma, mm-hmm. I said, oh, so the aroma in a lemon peel comes from essential oils, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do I hold them in mm-hmm. without losing them? And so then I said, well, I have fat and I know the essential oils dissolve in fat better. Wow. Let me um, zest it directly into butter and then use that hot butter and, you know, pull out those things. Where is this recipe of yours? It's the lemon cake, I think, is on my blog. It's on I your think. blog? Okay. It's on my blog, I think, for sure. So people should go to a brown table and check yeah, it out. Yeah, Wait, one. so, okay, we have, we have a lot to cover. Um, Nick, you're doing really well. I mean, I'm enjoying okay. all these little <laughs> sidebars. But so you went to grad school, and then what was this? I think I asked you this earlier. But oh, I, yeah, we I got kept, sidetracked. I kept interrupting yeah. you. But what, no, no, like, we got sidetracked. So when did you start the blog? I started the blog when I was in Cincinnati. no. I started the blog when I was in D.C. So when, how did you get to D.C.? Okay, so I had come out. I came out as gay in the first year or two of living in Ohio. And Ohio was where you started grad school? Yeah. So did you know you were gay in India? I did. And one of the reasons why I also wanted to leave India at that time was because it was um, a criminal offense to be gay. And I had heard stories. I hadn't come out, but I'd heard stories like when my parents were talking about people that they knew and had like gone through all these things. Mind you, my parents coming from two different backgrounds, having a love marriage were very liberal, but still I felt uncomfortable. And so I knew I needed to get out. You said a love marriage as opposed to a prearranged marriage? Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, my mom's family, everyone has had a love marriage. My dad's family um, is more conservative. Okay. My mom's family is not. So you told your parents? I did not. Oh, you did not? Uh, so I came out, I Maybe in the first year. I think it was very quick. Like I said, okay, I'm free. Yeah. I don't think I'm going, going to, hopefully not going to go back, but I need to come out. I love that you're going to quickly skip, skip over this part of the story. But I'm, like, <laughs> I'm dragging you through it because it seems like it's kind of important so, in terms yeah, of everything. I came out and what was funny was my mother struggled the most with it yeah. because she felt that she was being punished because she had the love marriage. She married someone out of her faith. Oh, um, wow. My mom went, my mom's Jewish and okay. had similar so, Like a ideas. lot of Catholic guilt yeah. feeds into oh, that God. nonsense. Jewish guilt is very yeah. similar, yeah. And so I told my mom, this is not about you, it's about me. Yes, um, that's very healthy. Right? Yeah. And so we can't make this about you right now. And then it came out, my dad was okay with it. Um, he really had nothing to add to it. He just said, be safe. You know, the usual yeah. like, uncomfortable stuff parents <laughs> to give you advice when it comes to sex. Oh, yeah. Um, and then uh, everybody in my family was okay with it. I remember some of my cousins telling me we were waiting, which that upset me because um, 
Was there like a thing on my forehead? You don't want to listen How to kids, you know? excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, but everything's cool. Like my grandfather at the time, um, like he met my husband before he passed away. And he was 97 and he was very oh, cool with it. Okay. In fact, he was the one who had to sit down with my mother and tell her also that um, it's not about you. Really? You to, like get over it. What a cool grandfather. Yeah. So he was really cool. Uh, my grandmother had passed away before I came out. So she- So in terms of the connection to all these elements of your life story, it's like you were drawn to science. Mm-hmm. You were secretly gay in India. Mm-hmm. You knew it wasn't safe. You hadn't come out to your parents yet. So when you came to the States to go to grad school, was it a double thing where like you were coming here to go to grad school, but also to get away from India? Both, so you yeah. Could be gay? Definitely both. So if I- you weren't gay, would you have stayed in India? No, I would still have considered moving away just for career opportunities okay. and um, seeing where I would go. Um, I love that you keep trying to answer the question of how you started your food blog. And we <laughs> and keep, like, I keep, yeah, all right, get to the food blog. Okay, so, <laughs> no, I, I, okay, let's see, where were we? Cincinnati. Came out from Cincinnati. Yeah. I passed my PhD qualifying exam, uh, but I was in an internal conflict where it's one thing to come out and get accepted by people. It's another thing to accept yourself. And I was struggling with that. I was depressed Okay. Uh, because even though I had made friends in Cincinnati in school and everything, I was still Cincinnati, Ohio is still very conservative, at least at that time. I haven't been back in many years. And so there was this internal, internal struggle, this conflict, because you would come across people where I'm also not white. Mm-hmm. So I'm also dealing with um, race issues. That That's something that was also very new to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come from a country where my skin color was in the majority and now it's not. Right. And so being someone who's not expected, even in the gay world, it can be difficult, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And so I was dealing with that. And I said, I think I just need to move to a larger city and have change mm-hmm. somehow. So I passed my qualifying exam and against everyone's... Uh, No one was excited about me doing this, but I quit. I said, I'm just going to walk away with my master's and I'm done. So wait, what does that mean though? So you you were able to get your PhD, but you didn't take it? So in PhD, at least in most PhD programs, you have to complete a certain time period. Okay. And then you have to also, at least in my program, we had to write an independent research grant. Okay. um, Which I did. And then you still, after that, had to at least get a paper published. Okay. So that's you, like the minimal requirement. So did you quit right before that requirement? So I finished everything except the paper. Okay. Um, so you got it, pretty far along. Yeah. And I was there for four and a half, five years. Okay. Um, and another thing that had happened in between a lab that I worked in, the professor had also moved away. So I switched labs and then being depressed internally really didn't help. Yeah. So I just said, I'm going to walk away. And were you creatively also unfulfilled? I mean, as much as you were depressed, were you also, I mean, it seems like there must have been some part of you pining to do the thing that you ultimately would do, which is cook. And I didn't know if I was going to cook. But one of the things I did feel, though, I did feel a bit repressed because also being on a student visa, you can't do anything beyond what it allows you to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did feel a bit stifled in that sense. Fascinating. So you were kind of... Yeah, I was velvet handcuffs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, maybe I just need change. So I got like I switched from a student visa to a work visa, came to Georgetown Hospital where I was was actually ended up working for the longest time. Um, And I worked at the Department of Medicine doing research. Um, Then being on a work visa, new opportunities arose. So being in D.C., that's where I started the blog. Got it. Started dating my husband. Uh, Let's see. What else did I do? I decided to go back to school. And because I was living in D.C., I thought maybe I should try and understand how human behavior and uh, science kind of come together in Uh policy. 
And so I went back and I got a degree in public policy, specialized in health. Wow, you've done so much. I've done way too much schooling and I don't use it now. <laughs> <laughs> I did exactly the same here. Yeah, I went to law school and oh I my went gosh. to grad school for playwriting. I, I used the latter more, but I never used my law degree. Oh, so, okay, so you started the food blog and you called it a brown table. Mm-hmm. And immediately, were you, did, did you have a political perspective? I mean, was it sort of, no, it was just sort of the fun. I just wanted to write about food that I was cooking because one of the things I started to, I had no intent to, first of all, I didn't have any intent. One of the things that used to happen with waiting for experiments, I would go online and look for recipes sometimes, what to cook. And I'd come across food blogs and the photographs were so beautiful. So when the incubation periods for experiments are so long, you just sit and scroll, scroll. scroll. (laughs) And so it kind of drew me in. Um, And that was when I said, oh, this is really fun. Like, who are these people, you know, writing recipes yeah. and going to all these beautiful places? So you're living vicariously through everyone else, sure. right? And that drew me in. And then my friends started suggesting, oh, you should write a blog. And that's how the blog came about. And what um, year was this that you started your blog? Oh, God. You don't remember. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm old guard. I was 2004. I mean, not to brag, but. Maybe mine's probably around the same time. Oh, right. Never mind. Oh, yeah. We're in the same boat. I'm not. I'm honestly not. Maybe 2004. Oh, really? So we started at the same maybe, time. Maybe. I, I don't know. And so do you remember it's what so your bad. first first post was? It was probably about. Tr- I think my first blog post was about. It said that this is the first blog post. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know That's what to write. How about your first recipe? Do you remember what that was? No, <laughs> God, no, I don't, I probably wouldn't even look at it because I think sure mine was uh, mistakes. Mine was uh, Mar- making Martha Stewart's chocolate chip cookies, I think. Okay. But that was way back in the day. So, okay. So then you moved to San Francisco with your hu- husband who you met and how did you meet your husband? So we met at a gay bar in DC. Okay. Um, yeah. Long story short, yeah. we, we, we met at a gay bar in DC. Nothing happened. No. Um, <laughs> We had a friend in common, and that actually helped. Okay. Um, I always feel that helps the best. And I met your to... husband, and he's in the like in technology world? Yeah, so he was in the Air Force before, oh, right. did his time, and then uh, moved into defense. So he's in defense. Very cool. I mean, was in defense, not anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you guys met, and then you, you moved to San Francisco because he had a career opportunity? Yeah, he wanted to get out of defense consulting, and then moved, we moved to California. And when you got to San Francisco, so you were saying earlier you started writing for the San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah. And what was that like when you got that job? That was fun because I had actually reached out to them for freelance photography jobs. And oh. I met with my editor at the time. And I said, hey, I'm looking for freelance photography jobs. He said, send me a portfolio. I did that. Then he came back after a couple of weeks and said, hey, so we think actually instead of photographing, why don't you write your own food column? For wow, us? that's so cool. Uh, yeah. And so that was fun. And then I've been doing that for the long, ever since... Maybe four years now doing okay. that. Yeah. Are you still doing it? Yeah. Oh, and so how many? How often do you have to write a column? I, I've kind of reduced now because there's just too many things happening. So I started out doing twice a month, then I went to three times a month, and four times, and I'm back to once a month. That's a lot. Yeah, because I couldn't keep up. I mean, I I look at all these people who create recipes for you know like Alison Roman and all these, and it just sort of feels like God. I, I don't know if I could. Because first of all, I don't really come up with my own recipes sure. that I would want to share. But to not only have to share it, but to also like think about like going viral and, and, and standing out, it just feels like so much pressure. Yeah, I've, that's something I've never paid attention to going viral. And maybe I should. That might help me. But one of the things um, I feel is for me, 
I also have to think about the photography because I shoot everything myself. So it's the writing, the styling, the cooking and photographing. So for me, that's enough at this point for me to handle. And so if doing like four things a month just wasn't feasible. That sounds like a lot of work. Do you use science in your photography too? I do. How so? Uh, Let's see. With light. I often... For the most part, I prefer to use artificial light. I really, really? I don't like natural. Oh, that's so funny. That was like the one thing I learned. Yeah, I know. They tell everyone to do that. And I don't know why they do that because it's a lot more work. If you're living on the East Coast like I did originally, yes. if the sun's never out for the most part of the year, right? Uh-huh. And it starts to set very early in winter. True. So you're struggling with that. Then you're struggling with temperature. Right. Right. So like if it's yellow, if it's blue, you got to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. If you have natural and it's at a fixed amount of light mm-hmm. and at the fixed temperature, then you can control everything much better. I see. And so it's better to learn. And this is something my dad told me because I didn't actually get to learn photography from my dad. I left too early before I even got into blogging. So one of the things he always says, it's better to learn in natural before you go into artificial. I mean, uh, art, it's better to learn artificial than go into natural. Oh, because you know how to adjust like the white balance. And right. All. Okay. And that's so important because often I'll now looking back as a more mature photographer, yes. I look at photographs and you can see things mm-hmm. and then you go, okay, so this could be different, right? right? And so I, when I look back at my own work and I say, okay, this is what I should have done back then. And do you have a light that you bought online? Yeah, uh, let's see. My first light was the, and I had that even until a few months ago. Yeah. You're in LA. Okay. It was literally a lamp from Target and I <laughs> changed the bulb. That's all you did? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I, it didn't come with the bulb. So I bought, I, you know, you get bulbs that are listed by temperature, right? Uh-huh. So I bought one of those and I, Start to experiment to find out which light worked best for me. What were the conditions? Mm-hmm. So that took a while to kind of figure out. Um, this is kind of like niche, this subject matter. But I'm, I'm so interested in it because I have, I have struggled with my photography okay. over the years. But yeah, and now uh, having learned that, I've moved away from that. And I'm doing a combination of natural and artificial. It looks, whatever you're doing looks so gorgeous. It's, thank you. So I feel like it's been a learning curve, a very long one. Because yeah. I didn't go to school for these things. But um it's fun that's what i enjoy about it well nick we're not at the end of the podcast yet but we're almost there very close but i feel like we've gotten so so much good stuff one of the things that i want to go back to is your lunch Uh uh-huh so i can i hope i'm not divulging too much but when we we texted before you came Uh you said that you don't normally eat lunch right i don't normally eat lunch so can you talk about like a typical day for you like what what meals you do have yeah so in the I wake up in the morning. I usually do, my breakfast is really simple. Usually okay. like a, two slices of toast with eggs. That's uh-huh. what I really like. Just scrambled eggs? Uh, or a fried egg. A fried Mostly egg. Mostly it's a fried egg. And then cheese. I need cheese and butter. So I have that. That's my standard thing. What if kind I, of cheese? I usually get a sharp cheddar. Okay. And you put that on the toast. Yeah. And then the egg on top. And this is so bad. I get like, the, I know people look down on sliced. I don't get craft, but I get the other like nicer yeah. sliced. Sure. There's no judgment. Right? Whatever you like. So I, I, I get that. And then um, I do switch. I some I'll skip the butter out sometimes and use. I really like this vegan mayonnaise, chipotle mayonnaise. Really, and I use it with meat also. It's so good. Why vegan? Uh, it just ta- it's it's not because it's vegan. It just so happens that it's vegan. The taste is so good. Uh huh. Um, There's the some ch- science to it. The why is why is the taste I of like vegan it. mayonnaise better than the taste of not vegan mayonnaise? 
I don't know if it was all that. I definitely, this was just like, the ch- it, ha- it has a chipotle flavor in it. So I, Sorry, I'm just like, like torturing you here. These um, but it, it works well. It just, so that's my usual breakfast. And then I go to the gym and then I come back and I start work, uh, working at home. Okay. Um, by the time I'm done, it's already like four or five in the evening. Really? So, and you're cooking all day? I'm cooking and photographing stuff. So, for, and the typical, like, what was the last day of was did you work today did you work yesterday and like maybe you don't want to reveal what you were cooking working sure on, sure sure but like, um the thing with cooking is that i'm testing it again and again and again and again and you know having spoonfuls yeah. constantly so i think that definitely kills my appetite for lunch i'm so i think people would be curious to know though like when you are a cookbook author and writing a regular recipe column how many times are you making whatever you're making mm-hmm. and how do you know when to stop Oh my God. How to know when to stop is the the hardest question. Yes. Because I have been working on a coconut cookie recipe for my new book. Uh Uh-huh. And I looked at the number of times I've tested it and I'm I'm finally very happy with it. Okay. But it took 17 attempts to get there. Really? 17 17. And I've been testing it before I moved here. Yes. And now that I moved here, I was still testing it until... Tuesday. That is yesterday. Oh my gosh. And did you, um, do you have somebody who's palette you trust to taste your, to do your recipes so for the book i usually send stuff out uh-huh. and i'll ask a bunch of different people who are from the food world and not from the food world right. which That's is smart. very important yeah um the other thing i do is with recipe testers for the book i will make sure that people are not only from america but also from outside okay because i need a wider perspective mm-hmm. because a book i feel goes much for that, at least in sure. my experience. Um, and so I need to understand what people get, what they don't like. Um, and it's also fascinating uh, for someone who wants to understand what how people are thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I enjoy that. Um, so that's kind of how I approach recipe testing and tasting. Tasting it is, is a little trickier to do if I'm cooking it. Yes. To get round everyone up. Right. Um, but I use usually like a hedonistic kind of... Um, form with people and tell them to rate things and oh, that's smart so you're a scientific approach to tasting I too. <laughs> anyway i was going to ask i forgot to ask this but like when you came to america for the first time from india what did you think of the food here uh, <laughs> let me think uh i mean did you grow up with kind of excited like by the idea of American food? I mean, did you have I, that growing up? Like burgers yeah, and Yeah, so I feel like because my both my parents, their families, they had rel- close relatives that lived outside. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff wasn't new, so I'd heard about it. And because my parents um, didn't always serve Indian food. Yes. Um, also my mother, I think what also helps is that my mother comes from a Portuguese um her family comes from a former Portuguese colony. Okay. So you see Western influences already. So it's not like it's unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, so certain things I expected. There were certain things that were definitely new to me. Okay. Um, like pasta sauce is not made with tomato ketchup. And initially I remember in India that was a thing. It was made with tomato ketchup? Yeah, wow. like pizza sauce. People would use ketchup because it's just what marinara wasn't a thing. Yeah, yes. Right? People funny. didn't know what it was. and so, But now it is. Like people uh, know what it is. Oh, okay. So that's changed there too. Right ingredients are different right um and so definitely like just seeing how things taste texture wise Uh colors there seems to be a lot more variety here okay in terms of what's available Uh, california is is a it's is very different again compared to the rest of the country Uh uh-huh um so in that sense i think it's definitely very exciting uh when i you know and then the other thing was coming to america i didn't have a lot of money okay and the 
and I hadn't really seen the world at that point. Okay. So travel, you know, saving money, going to restaurants was the best way for me to kind of explore the world. So, you know, go to Greek food or uh, Thai, a cheaper passport, if you will. So it seems like part of what you enjoyed about coming to America was the melting pot quality of like different cultures yeah. all here as yeah. opposed to like one homogenous culture right. in India. Right. Well, this, this is actually a perfect way to bring it back to the donuts. Because okay. when, when did you first have donuts in your life? In school in India. In India. So yeah. you had to, and what, what, what kind of donuts do they have in India? Um, chocolate's pretty popular. So it's like circular. It looks exactly it's the a, same. Yeah, it's the same. And okay. actually, when my grandmother passed away, I inherited her cookbook, uh-huh. which is all her notes in there. She has 27 recipes just for donuts. Really? Yeah. So it's a big thing there. So with her, it was definitely with her, a big yeah. thing. Yeah. I shouldn't generalize. Um, yeah. But donuts are, were definitely big, um, you know. <laughs> Sorry, my dog is like, <laughs> there's like a proboscis monkey doll in our room that Craig got on a job oh. and Winston is chewing its head off. Winston, what are you doing? Sorry, he's being very bad. Um, well, um, Nick, mm-hmm. every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch? Okay. But it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? What am I having for dinner tonight? We're go- well, we're going to go to the Indian store, so I feel I'm probably going to pick something up there. Oh, yeah, so we should tell our listeners. Yeah. So I live near this Indian grocery store, as I mentioned, and Nick is going to go with me there, which I'm so excited about. Yeah, I think this is going to be more of Adam leading me through an Indian Really? Store. really? Okay. I haven't been to any in LA yet. Well, and I don't live next to one in Santa Monica. I, Craig, Craig cracked up when I told him I was going there with you. He's like, you said, you said, make sure to buy some more black cardamom, which is a joke. Okay. Because I once made a chickpea curry uh-huh. and talk about like not being scientific about it. I just went to the India Sweets and Spices, which is where I live. And I bought a bunch of just random spices, including black okay. cardamom, which I'd never used before. Okay. Which has a very like it's related but different. It's almost like sooty, like it almost has like an like a burnt flavor. It's like for me, it's more camp. It smells more like camphor, which is what. Uh, let's see, camphor. How do I explain camphor? Remember mothballs? Yes, like that's mothballs. camphor. So I took a tablespoon of it and I put oh, it in you the put chicken. ground, not whole. Yeah, the ground. Oh, sh- I put a, ground, a tablespoon, and I, and I also got black cumin, which I don't know if that has a strong taste. Whatever I did to this curry, okay. it was inedible. It was, oh, no. it was just tasted just awful because okay. I had no idea what I was doing, which actually speaks to the idea of like actually understanding what you're doing when you're doing it <laughs> and not being a witch and just throwing it a pinch <laughs> a of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, witchy cooking oh. is not good. You know what will really help you? What? But, um, Harold McGee's book, he oh. has a table on is on the different chemicals in everything. I'm so embarrassed. And I just did a cookbook that. purge. I got rid of all, all the books I don't use and I got rid of it. Oh no. Oh no. I'll have to, I, you know, actually it's really funny. That's a book that I get rid of and then buy again. I've done that oh. several times because I feel guilty. So I will probably buy it again. You should probably get it and I'll mark the table for you and tell you that's the only thing if you really want to get a better cook is to just hold on to that thing it'll make you better i was going to ask when we go to this indian grocery store is there something that you hope that they have there that you'd be i'm secretly hoping they'll have a curry leaf plant but we'll see they have curry fresh curry leaves they sell there which is was exciting when i came upon it i I mean the plant is somewhere close by Maybe, yeah. but I love I love fresh curry leaves. Yeah, and, um, I love curry. Actually, I first learned to use them with Asha Gomez, who I think oh, yeah, blurred your book. Gomes, but yeah. I got to meet her in Atlanta when I did my cookbook. Oh, and so okay. she taught me to like stem the whole curry yeah, yeah, thing yeah, yeah, and throw yeah. them in the hot oil. She's the best. She's amazing. So we tell us about the new book before we end. Like, what, what's that? So the new book is going to be very geeky. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's going to be very geeky. It's 
I kind of feel like it's a good sequel to Season, my first book. But uh-huh. if I feel like Season is more about who I am, mm-hmm. this is more about how I think. Okay. Um, Which we've gotten little windows into yeah. so far today. And yeah. so literally, literally everything that I try to do practically, I try to put on paper in the book. Uh-huh. And then there were all these questions that I had in food that I couldn't figure out. And I've tried to figure it out for the book. Okay. And then questions that... Uh, readers have asked me over the years and I've tried to kind of get at them scientifically. Right. And there was, there are some surprises. I, I don't want to give anything away because it's so, it's a lot of time. It's going to be out this year in fall. In the fall? Yeah. That's not that far away. That's pretty soon. Yeah. But does it have a title yet? Or it does have a title. You can't say yet. Yeah, don't do yeah. it. If you're if you're not sure, don't do it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so there is a title. I will say this. It's, it's a thicker, fatter book. It's definitely, even photography-wise, I know the first book is dark. Uh-huh. This definitely gets has that component in there. There were certain photography things that I've always wanted to photograph and I've never been able to. I crossed that off just in case I'd never get to write another book after this right. and they tell me no. Okay. I try to, like, tick all my bases. That's great. Um, I think it'll be a fun book. It's geeky, very geeky. Which people love. I, mean, well, I hope so. They love Kenji, has all his, uh, the food lab kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge bestseller. Yeah. So that's a good sign. So it's going to be very geeky, but it also is, I w- without giving too much away, I will say this, there's definitely science in the book. Yes. Even my first book had a little bit of science. There's definitely science in this one, but the science, I've tried to make it flow practically into the kitchen. I've attempted. That's perfect for me. So we'll see. You, um, I mean, we'll see perfect, what you think. For someone who couldn't handle Harold McGee, no offense, I hope he's not listening. Probably a good chance he's not I love listening. McGee. <laughs> I know, I know, but I think your book is designed for me. Okay, go I'm ahead. I'm going to pre-order it right now. It's not yet on Amazon. Because you can't even say the title, so how oh, would I even yeah. find it? All right, Nick, thank you so much for thank coming you for over. Me. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's go to the Indian grocery store. Let's head on. All right. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-Cast. 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 A-